Part two of The Entail in Weird Tales, Volume One by E. T. A. Hoffman, translated by J. T. Bilby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Cobland. That peculiar mood of diffused, melting sadness which is engendered of such love as mine was had quite left me, and accordingly, when the pianoforte was brought into something like tune, instead of interpreting my deeper feelings in dreamy improvisations, as I had intended, I began with those sweet and charming canzonettes which have reached us from the south. During this or the other senza di te without thee, or sentimi idol mio, hear me, my darling, or almen se non posio, at least if I cannot, with numberless morir mi sentos, I feel I am dying, and adios, farewell, and oh, dios, oh, heaven, a brighter and brighter brilliancy shone in Serafina's eyes. She had seated herself close beside me at the instrument. I felt her breath fanning my cheek, and as she placed her arm behind me on the chair back, a white ribbon, getting disengaged from her beautiful ball dress, fell across my shoulder where by my singing and Serafina's soft sighs it was kept in a continual flutter backwards and forwards, like a true love messenger. It is a wonder how I kept from losing my head. As I was running my fingers aimlessly over the keys, thinking of a new song, Lady Adelhide, who had been sitting in one of the corners of the room, ran across to us, and kneeling down before the Baroness, begged her, as she took both her hands and clasped them to her bosom, Oh, dear Baroness, darling Serafina, now you must sing, too. To this she replied, Whatever are you thinking about, Adelheid? How could I dream of letting our virtuoso friend hear such poor singing as mine? And she looked so lovely as like a shy good child she cast down her eyes and blushed, timidly contending with the desire to sing. That I, too, added my entreaties can easily be imagined nor upon her making mention of some little Quirlen Volkslieder or popular songs did I desist from my entreaties until she stretched out her left hand towards the instrument and tried a few notes by way of introduction. I rose to make way for her at the piano, but she would not permit me to do so, asserting that she could not play a single chord, and for that reason, since she would have to sing without accompaniment, her performance would be poor and uncertain. She began in a sweet voice, pure as a bell, that came straight from her heart, and sang a song whose simple melody bore all the characteristics of those Volkslieder which proceed from the lips with such a lustrous brightness, so to speak, that we cannot help perceiving in the glad light which surrounds us our own higher poetic nature. There lies a mysterious charm in the insignificant words of the text, which converts them into a hieroglyphic scroll representative of the unutterable emotions which throng our hearts. Who does not know that Spanish canzonet, the substance of which is in words little more than with my maiden I embarked on the sea, the storm came on and my timid maiden was tossed up and down. Nay, I will never again embark on the sea with my maiden. And the Baroness's little song contained nothing more than lately I was dancing with my sweetheart at a wedding. A flower fell out of my hair. He picked it up and gave it me and said, when, sweetheart mine, shall we go to a wedding again? When, on her beginning the second verse of the song, I played an arpeggio accompaniment, and further, when, in the inspiration which now took possession of me, I at once stole from the Baroness's own lips the melodies of the other songs she sang, I doubtless appeared in her eyes, 
and in those of the Lady Adelheid, to be one of the greatest of masters in the art of music, for they overwhelmed me with enthusiastic praise. The lights and illuminations from the ballroom, situated in one of the wings of the castle, now shone across into the Baroness's chamber, whilst a discordant bleating of trumpets and French horns announced that it was time to gather for the ball. Oh, now I must go, said the Baroness. I started up from the pianoforte. You have afforded me a delightful hour. These have been the pleasantest moments I have ever spent in our blank sitting, she added, offering me her hand. And as in the extreme intoxication of delight I pressed it to my lips, I felt her fingers close upon my hand with a sudden convulsive tremor. I do not know how I managed to reach my uncle's chamber, and still less how I got into the ballroom. There was a certain Gascon, who was afraid to go into battle, since he was all heart, and every wound would be fatal to him. I might be compared to him, and so might everybody else who is in the same mood that I was in. Every touch was then fatal. The Baroness's hand, her tremulous fingers, had affected me like a poisoned arrow. My blood was burning in my veins. On the following morning, my old uncle, without asking any direct questions, had soon drawn from me a full account of the hour I had spent in the Baroness's society, and I was not a little abashed when the smile vanished from his lips, and the jocular note from his words, and he grew serious all at once, saying, Cousin, I beg you will resist this folly which is taking such a powerful hold upon you. Let me tell you that your present conduct, as harmless as it now appears, may lead to the most terrible consequences. In your thoughtless fatuity you are standing on a thin crust of ice, which may break under you ere you are aware of it, and let you in with a plunge. I shall take good care not to hold you fast by the coat-tails, for I know you will scramble out again pretty quick, and then, when you are lying sick unto death, you will say, I got this little bit of a cold in a dream. But I warn you that a malignant fever will gnaw at your vitals, and years will pass before you recover yourself and are a man again. The deuce take your music, if you can put it to no better use than to cousin sentimental young women out of their quiet peace of mind. But, I began, interrupting the old gentleman, but have I ever thought of insinuating myself as the Baroness's lover? You puppy, cried the old gentleman, if I thought so, I would pitch you out of this window. At this juncture, the Baron entered and put an end to the painful conversation, and the business to which I now had to turn my attention brought me back from my lovesick reveries, in which I saw and thought of nothing but Seraphina. In general society, the Baroness only occasionally interchanged a few friendly words with me, but hardly an evening passed in which a secret message was not brought to me from Lady Adelheid, summoning me to Seraphina. It soon came to pass that our music alternated with conversations on diverse topics. Whenever I and Seraphina began to get too absorbed in sentimental dreams and vague aspirations, the Lady Adelheid, though now hardly young enough to be so naive and droll as she once was, yet intervened with all sorts of merry and somewhat chaotic nonsense. From several hints she let fall, I soon discovered that the Baroness really had something preying upon her mind, even as I thought I had read in her eyes the very first moment I saw her, and I clearly discerned the hostile influence of the apparition of the castle. Something terrible had happened, or was to happen, 
although I was often strongly impelled to tell Seraphina in what way I had come in contact with the invisible enemy, and how my old uncle had banished him, undoubtedly forever, I yet felt my tongue fettered by a hesitation which was inexplicable to myself even, whenever I opened my mouth to speak. One day the Baroness failed to appear at the dinner-table. It was said that she was a little unwell and could not leave her room. Sympathetic inquiries were addressed to the Baron as to whether her illness was of a grave nature. He smiled in a very disagreeable way, in fact it was almost like bitter irony, and said, Nothing more than a slight catarrh, which he has got from our blustering sea-breezes. They can't tolerate any sweet voices. The only sounds they will endure are the hoarse halloos of the chase. At these words the Baron hurled a keen, searching look at me across the table, for I sat obliquely opposite to him. He had not spoken to his neighbour, but to me. Lady Adelheide, who sat beside me, blushed a scarlet red. Fixing her eyes upon the plate in front of her, and scribbling about on it with her fork, she whispered, And yet you must see Seraphina to-day. Your sweet songs shall to-day also bring soothing and comfort to her poor heart. Adelheide addressed these words to me, but at this moment it struck me that I was almost apparently entangled in a base and forbidden intrigue with the Baroness, which could only end in some terrible crime. My old uncle's warning fell heavily upon my heart. What should I do? Not see her again? That was impossible so long as I remained in the castle, and even if I might leave the castle and return to Blank, I had not the will to do it. Oh, I felt only too deeply that I was not strong enough to shake myself out of this dream which was mocking one with delusive hopes of happiness. Adelheid I almost regarded in the light of a common go-between. I would despise her, and yet, upon second thoughts, I could not help being ashamed of my folly. Had anything ever happened during those blissful evening hours which could in the least degree lead to any nearer relation with Seraphina than was permissible by propriety and morality? How dare I let the thought enter my mind that the Baroness would ever entertain any warm feeling for me? And yet I was convinced of the danger of my situation. We broke up from dinner earlier than usual, in order to go again after some wolves which had been seen in the firwood close by the castle. A little hunting was just the thing I wanted in the excited frame of mind in which I then was. I expressed to my uncle my resolve to accompany the party. He gave me an approving smile and said, That's right. I am glad you are going out with them for once. I shall stay at home, so you can take my firelock with you, and buckle my winger around your waist. In case of need, it is a good and trusty weapon, if you only keep your presence of mind. That part of the wood in which the wolves were supposed to lie was surrounded by the huntsmen. It was bitterly cold. The wind howled through the firs and drove the light snowflakes right in my face, so that when at length it came on to be dusk, I could scarcely see six paces before me. Quite benumbed by the cold, I left the place that had been assigned to me and sought shelter deeper in the wood. There, leaning against a tree with my firelock under my arm, I forgot the wolf hunt entirely. My thoughts had travelled back to Serafina's cosy room. After a time, shots were heard in the far distance, but at the same moment there was a rustling in the reed-bank, and I saw not ten paces from me a huge wolf about to run past me. I took aim and fired, but missed. The brute sprang towards me with glaring eyes, 
I should have been lost had I not had sufficient presence of mind to draw my hunting knife, and, just as the brute was flying at me, to drive it deep into his throat, so that the blood spurted out over my hand and arm. One of the baron's keepers, who had stood not far from me, came running up with a loud shout, and at his repeated halloo all the rest soon gathered round us. The baron hastened up to me, saying, For God's sake, you are bleeding, you are bleeding. Are you wounded? I assured him that I was not. Then he turned to the keeper who had stood nearest to me, and overwhelmed him with reproaches for not having shot after me when I missed. And, notwithstanding that the man maintained this to have been perfectly impossible, since in the very same moment the wolf had rushed upon me, and any shot would have been at the risk of hitting me, the baron persisted in saying that he ought to have taken a special care of me as a less experienced hunter. Meanwhile, the keepers had lifted up the dead animal. It was one of the largest that had been seen for a long time, and everybody admired my courage and resolution. Although to myself what I had done appeared quite natural, I had not for a moment thought of the danger I had run. The baron in particular seemed to take a very great interest in the matter. I thought he would never be done asking me whether, though I was not wounded by the brute, I did not fear the ill effects that would follow from the fright. As we went back to the castle, the baron took me by the arm like a friend and I had to give my firelock to a keeper to carry. He still continued to talk about my heroic deed, so that eventually I came to believe in my own heroism, and lost all my constraint and embarrassment, and felt that I had established myself in the Baron's eyes as a man of courage and uncommon resolution. The schoolboy had passed his examination successfully, was now no longer a schoolboy, and all the submissive nervousness of the schoolboy had left him. I now conceived I had earned a right to try and gain Serafina's favor. Everybody knows, of course, what ridiculous combinations the fancy of a lovesick youth is capable of. In the castle, over the smoking punch bowl by the fireside, I was the hero of the hour. Besides myself, the Baron was the only one of the party who had killed a wolf, also a formidable one. The rest had to be content with ascribing their bad shots to the weather and the darkness, and with relating thrilling stories of their former exploits in hunting and the dangers they had escaped. I thought, too, that I might reap an especial share of praise and admiration from my old uncle as well, and so, with a view to this end, I related to him my adventure at pretty considerable length, nor did I forget to paint the savage brute's wild and bloodthirsty appearance in very startling colors. The old gentleman, however, only laughed in my face and said, God is powerful even in the weak. Tired of drinking and of the company, I was going quietly along the corridor towards the justice hall when I saw a figure with a light slip in before me. On entering the hall, I saw it was Lady Adelheid. This is the way we have to wander about like ghosts or night walkers in order to catch you, my brave slayer of wolves, she whispered, taking my arm. The word ghosts and sleepwalkers, pronounced in the place where we were, fell like lead upon my heart. They immediately brought to my recollection the ghostly apparitions of those two awful nights. As then, so now, the wind came howling in from the sea in deep organ-like cadences, rattling the oriel windows again and again, and whistling fearfully through them whilst the moon cast her pale gleams exactly upon the mysterious part of the wall where the scratching had been heard. I fancied I discerned stains of blood upon it. 
Doubtless Lady Adelheid, who still had hold of my hand, must have felt the cold, icy shiver which ran through me. What's the matter with you? she whispered softly. What's the matter with you? You are as cold as marble. Come, I will call you back to life. Do you know how very impatient the Baroness is to see you? And until she does see you, she will not believe that the ugly wolf has not really bitten you. She is in a terrible state of anxiety about you. Why, my friend, oh, how have you awakened this interest in the little Seraphina? I have never seen her like this. Ah, so now the pulse is beginning to prickle. See how quickly the dead man comes to life. Well, come along, but softly, still, come, we must go to see the little Baroness. I suffered myself to be led away in silence. The way in which Adelheid spoke of the Baroness seemed to me undignified, and the innuendo of an understanding between us positively shameful. When I entered the room along with Adelheid, Seraphina, with a low-breathed, oh, advanced three or four paces quickly to meet me. But then, as if recollecting herself, she stood still in the middle of the room. I ventured to take her hand and press it to my lips. Allowing it to rest in mine, she asked, But for heaven's sake, is it your business to meddle with wolves? Don't you know that the fabulous days of Orpheus and Amphion are long past, and that wild beasts have quite lost all respect for even the most admirable of singers? But this gleeful turn, by which the Baroness at once effectually guarded against all misinterpretation of her warm interest in me, I was put immediately into the proper key and the proper mood. Why did I not take my usual place at the pianoforte? I cannot explain, even to myself, nor why I sat down beside the Baroness on the sofa. Her question, and what were you doing then to get into danger? was an indication of our tacit agreement that conversation, not music, was to engage our attention for that evening. After I had narrated my adventure in the wood, and mentioned the warm interest which the Baron had taken in it, delicately hinting that I had not thought him capable of so much feeling, the Baroness began in a tender and almost melancholy tone, Oh, how violent and rude you must think the Baron! But I assure you, it is only whilst we are living within these gloomy ghostly walls, and during the time there is hunting going on in the dismal fir forests, that his character completely changes, at least his outward behaviour does. What principally disquiets him in this unpleasant way is the thought which constantly haunts him that something terrible will happen here. And that undoubtedly accounts for the fact of his being so greatly agitated by your adventure, which, fortunately, has had no ill consequences. He won't have the meanest of his servants exposed to danger if he knows it, still less a new one friend whom he has come to like, and I am perfectly certain that Gottlieb, whom he blames for having left you in the lurch, will be punished. Even if he escapes being locked up in a dungeon, he will yet have to suffer the punishment so mortifying to a hunter of going out the next time there is a hunt with only a club in his hand instead of a rifle. The circumstance that hunts like those which are held here are always attended with danger, and the fact that the baron, though always fearing some sad accident, is yet so fond of hunting that he cannot desist from provoking the demon of mischief, make his existence here a kind of conflict, the ill effects of which I also have to feel. Many queer stories are current about his ancestor who established the entail, and I know myself that there is some dark family secret locked within these walls like a horrible ghost which drives away the owners, 
and makes it impossible for them to bear with it longer than a few weeks at a time, and that only amid a tumult of jovial guests. But I, oh, how lonely I am in the midst of this noisy, merry company, and how the ghostly influences which breathe upon me from the walls stir and excite my very heart. You, my dear friend, have given me, through your musical skill, the first cheerful moments I have spent here. How can I thank you sufficiently for your kindness? I kissed the hand she offered to me, saying that even on the very first day, or rather during the very first night, I had experienced the ghostliness of the place in all its horrors. The Baroness fixed her staring eyes upon my face, as I went on to describe the ghostly character of the building, discernible everywhere throughout the castle, particularly in the decorations of the Justice Hall, and to speak of the roaring of the wind from the sea, etc. Possibly my voice and my expressions indicated that I had something more in my mind than what I said. At any rate, when I concluded, the Baroness cried vehemently, No, no, something dreadful has happened to you in that hall, which I never enter without shuddering. I beg you, pray, pray, tell me all. Seraphina's face had grown deadly pale, and I saw plainly that it would be more advisable to give her a faithful account of all that I had experienced than to leave her excited imagination to conjure up some apparition that might perhaps, in a way I could not foresee, be far more horrible than what I had actually encountered. As she listened to me, her fear and strained anxiety increased from moment to moment, and when I mentioned the scratching on the wall, she screamed, It's horrible! Yes! Yes, it's in that wall that the awful secret is concealed. But as I went on to describe with what spiritual power and superiority of will my old uncle had banished the ghost, she sighed deeply, as though she had shaken off a heavy burden that had weighed oppressively upon her. She leaned back in the sofa and held her hands before her face. Now I first noticed that Adelheid had left us. A considerable pause ensued, and as Serafina still continued silent, I softly rose and, going to the pianoforte, endeavoured in swelling chords to invoke the bright spirits of consolation to come and deliver Serafina from the dark influence to which my narration had subjected her. Then I soon began to sing, as softly as I was able, one of the Abbe Stefani's canzonas, the melancholy strains of the Ochi perché piangete, O eyes, why weep you? roused Seraphina out of her reverie, and she listened to me with a gentle smile upon her face and bright pearl-like tears in her eyes. How am I to account for it that I kneeled down before her, that she bent over towards me, that I threw my arms about her, that a long, ardent kiss was imprinted on my lips? How am I to account for it that I did not lose my senses when she drew me softly towards her? How that I tore myself from her arms and, quickly rising to my feet, hurried to the pianoforte. Turning from me, the baroness took a few steps towards the window. Then she turned round again and approached me with an air of almost proud dignity, which was not at all usual with her. Looking me straight in the face, she said, Your uncle is the most worthy old man I know. He is the guardian angel of our family. May he include me in his pious prayers. I was unable to utter a word. The subtle poison that I had imbibed with her kiss 
burned and boiled in every pulse and nerve. Lady Adelheid came in. The violence of my inward conflict burst out at length in a passionate flood of tears, which I was unable to repress. Adelheid looked at me with wonder, and smiled dubiously. I could have murdered her. The Baroness gave me her hand, and said with inexpressible gentleness, Farewell, my dear friend. Fare you right well, and remember that nobody perhaps has ever understood your music better than I have. Oh, these notes, they will echo long, long in my heart. I forced myself to utter a few stupid, disconnected words, and hurried up to my uncle's room. The old gentleman had already gone to bed. I stayed in the hall, and falling upon my knees, I wept aloud. I called upon my beloved by name. I gave myself up completely and regardlessly to all the absurd folly of a lovesick lunatic, until at last the extravagant noise I made awoke my uncle. But his loud call, Cousin, I believe you have gone cranky, or else you're having another tussle with a wolf. Be off to bed with you, if you will be so very kind. These words compelled me to enter his room, where I got into bed with the fixed resolve to dream only of Serafina. It would be somewhere past midnight when I thought I heard distant voices, a running backwards and forwards, and an opening and banging of doors, for I had not yet fallen asleep. I listened attentively. I heard footsteps approaching the corridor. The hall door was open, and soon there came a knock at our door. Who is there? I cried. The voice from without answered, Herr Justicarius, Herr Justicarius, wake up, wake up. I recognized Francis's voice, and as I asked, Is the castle on fire? The old gentleman woke up in his turn and asked, Where, where is there a fire? Is it that cursed apparition again? Where is it? Oh, please get up, Herr Justicarius, said Francis. Please get up. The Baron wants you. What does the Baron want me for? inquired my uncle further. What does he want me for at this time of night? Does he not know that all law business goes to bed along with the lawyer and sleeps as soundly as he does? Oh, cried Francis, now anxiously, please, Herr Justicarius, good sir, please get up. My lady, the Baroness, is dying. I started up with a cry of dismay. Open the door for Francis, said the old gentleman to me. I stumbled about the room almost distracted and could find neither door nor lock. My uncle had to come and help me. Francis came in, his face pale and troubled, and lit the candles. We had scarcely thrown on our clothes when we heard the Baron calling in the hall, "'Can I speak to you, good Viblain?' "'But what have you dressed for, cousin?' "'The Baron only wanted me,' asked the old gentleman on the point of going out. "'I must go down. I must see her and then die,' I replied tragically, and as if my heart were rent by hopeless grief. "'Aye, just so. You are right, cousin,' he said, banging the door to in my face, so that the hinges creaked and locking it on the outside.' At the first moment, deeply incensed at this restraint, I thought of bursting the door open, but quickly reflecting that this would entail the disagreeable consequences of a piece of outrageous insanity, I resolved to await the old gentleman's return. Then, however, let the cost be what it might, I would escape his watchfulness. I heard him talking vehemently with the Baron, and several times distinguished my own name, but could not make out anything further. Every moment my position grew more intolerable. At length I heard that someone brought a message to the Baron, who immediately hurried off. My old uncle entered the room again. 
she is dead i cried running towards him and you are a stupid fool he interrupted coolly then he laid hold upon me and forced me into a chair i must go down i cried i must go down and see her even though it cost me my life do so good cousin said he locking the door taking out the key and putting it in his pocket i now flew into a perfectly frantic rage stretching out my hands towards the rifle i screamed if you don't instantly open the door i will send this bullet through my brains then the old gentleman planted himself immediately in front of me and fixing his keen piercing eyes upon me said boy do you think you can frighten me with your idle threats do you think i should set much value on your life if you can go and throw it away in childish folly like a broken plaything what have you to do with the baron's wife who has given you the right to insinuate yourself like a tiresome puppy where you have no claim to be and where you are not wanted do you wish to go and act the lovesick swain at the solemn hour of death i sank back in my chair utterly confounded after a while the old gentleman went on more gently and now let me tell you that this pretended illness of the baroness is in all probability nothing lady adelheid always loses her head at the least little thing if a raindrop falls upon her nose she screams what fearful weather it is unfortunately the noise penetrated to the old aunts and they in the midst of unseasonable floods of tears put in an appearance armed with an entire arsenal of strengthening drops elixirs of life and the deuce knows what a sharp fainting fit the old gentleman checked himself doubtless he observed the struggle that was going on within me he took a few turns through the room then again planting himself in front of me he had a good hearty laugh and said cousin cousin what nonsensical folly have you now got in your head ah well i suppose it can't be helped the devil is to play his pretty games here in diverse sorts of ways you have tumbled very nicely into his clutches and now he's making you dance to a sweet tune he again took a few turns up and down and again went on it's no use to think of sleep now and it occurred to me that we might have a pipe and so spend the few hours that are left of the darkness and the night with these words he took a clay pipe from the cupboard and proceeded to fill it slowly and carefully humming a song to himself then he rummaged about amongst a heap of papers until he found a sheet which he picked out and rolled into a spill and lighted blowing the tobacco smoke from him in thick clouds he said speaking between his teeth well cousin what was that story about the wolf i know not how it was but this calm quiet behavior of the old gentleman operated strangely upon me i seemed to be no longer in our blank sitting and the baroness was so far far distant from me that i could only reach her on the wings of thought the old gentleman's last question however annoyed me but do you find my hunting exploits so amusing i broke in so well fitted for banter by no means he rejoined by no means cousin mine but you've no idea what a comical face such a whipper-snapper as you cuts and how ludicrously he acts as well when providence for once in a while honours him by putting him in the way to meet with something out of the usual run of things i once had a college friend who was a quiet sober fellow and always on good terms with himself. By accident, he became entangled in an affair of honor. I say by accident, because he himself was never in any way aggressive. 
and although most of the fellows looked upon him as a poor thing, as a poltroon, he yet showed so much firm and resolute courage in this affair as greatly to excite everybody's admiration. But from that time onwards, he was also completely changed. The sober and industrious youth became a bragging, insufferable bully. He was always drinking and rioting, and fighting about all sorts of childish trifles, until he was run through in a duel by the senior of an exclusive corps. Note. The reference, senior, is to a Landsmannschaft. These were associations at a university of students from the same state or country, bound to the observance of certain traditional customs, etc., and under the control of certain self-elected officers, the senior being one. Return to text. I merely tell you the story, cousin. You are at liberty to think what you please about it. But to return to the baroness and her illness. At this moment, light footsteps were heard in the hall. I fancied, too, there was an unearthly moaning in the air. She is dead. The thought shot through me like a fatal flash of lightning. The old gentleman quickly rose to his feet and called out, Francis? Francis? Yes, my good Herr Justicarius, he replied from without. Francis, went on my uncle, rake the fire together a bit in the grate, and if you can manage it, you had better make us a good cup or two of tea. It is devilish cold, and he turned to me, and I think we had better go and sit round the fire and talk a little. He opened the door, and I followed him mechanically. How are things going on below? he asked. Oh, replied Francis, there was not much the matter. The Lady Baroness is all right again, and ascribes her bit of a fainting fit to a bad dream. I was going to break out into an extravagant manifestation of joy and gladness, but a stern glance from my uncle kept me quiet. And yet, after all, I think it would be better if we lay down for an hour or two. You need not mind about the tea, Francis. As you think well, Herr Justicarius, replied Francis, and he left the room with the wish that we might have a good night's rest, albeit the cocks were already crowing. See here, cousin said the old gentleman, knocking the ashes out of his pipe on the grate. I think, cousin, that it's a very good thing no harm has happened to you, either from wolves or from loaded rifles. I now saw things in the right light, and was ashamed of myself to have thus given the old gentleman good grounds for treating me like a spoiled child. Next morning he said to me, Be so good as to step down, good cousin, and inquire how the baroness is. You need only ask for Lady Adelheid. She will supply you with a full budget, I have no doubt. You may imagine how eagerly I hastened downstairs, but just as I was about to give a gentle knock at the door of the Baroness's anteroom, the Baron came hurriedly out of the same. He stood still in astonishment and scrutinized me with a gloomy, searching look. What do you want here? burst from his lips. Notwithstanding that my heart beat, I controlled myself and replied in a firm tone, To inquire on my uncle's behalf, how my lady the baroness is. Oh, it was nothing. One of her usual nervous attacks. She is now having a quiet sleep, and will, I am sure, make her appearance at the dinner table quite well and cheerful. Tell him that. Tell him that. This the baron said with a certain degree of passionate vehemence, which seemed to me to imply that he was more concerned about the baroness than he was willing to show. I turned to go back to my uncle, when the baron suddenly seized my arm and said, whilst his eyes flashed fire, I have a word or two to say to you, young man. Here I saw the deeply injured husband before me, and feared there would be a scene which would perhaps end ignominiously for me. 
I was unarmed, but at that moment I remembered I had in my pocket the ingeniously made hunting knife which my uncle had presented to me after we got to R. Blankson. I now followed the baron, who led the way rapidly, with the determination not even to spare his life if I ran any risk of being treated dishonorably. We entered the baron's own room, the door of which he locked behind him. Now he began to pace restlessly backwards and forwards, with his arms folded one over the other. Then he stopped in front of me and repeated, I have a word or two to say to you, young man. I had wound myself up to a pitch of most daring courage, and I replied, raising my voice, I hope they will be words which I may hear without resentment. He stared hard at me in astonishment, as though he had failed to understand me. Then, fixing his eyes gloomily upon the floor, he threw his arms behind his back, and again began to stride up and down the room. He took down a rifle, and put the ramrod down the barrel to see whether it were loaded or not. My blood boiled in my veins. Grasping my knife, I stepped close up to him, so as to make it impossible for him to take aim at me. That's a handsome weapon, he said, replacing the rifle in the corner. I retired a few paces, the baron following me. Slapping me on the shoulder, perhaps a little more violently than was necessary, he said, I dare say I seem to you, Theodore, to be excited and irritable. And I really am so, owing to the anxieties of a sleepless night. My wife's nervous attack was not in the least dangerous, that I now see plainly. But here, here in this castle, which is haunted by an evil spirit, I always dread something terrible happening. And then it's the first time she has been ill here. And you, you alone, were to blame for it. How that can possibly be, I have not the slightest conception, I replied calmly. I wish, continued the baron, I wish that damned piece of mischief, my steward's wife's instrument, were chopped up into a thousand pieces, and that you... But no, no, it was to be so. It was inevitably to be so and I alone am to blame for all. I ought to have told you, the moment you began to play music in my wife's room, of the whole state of the case, and to have informed you of my wife's temper of mind. I was about to speak. Let me go on, said the baron. I must prevent your forming any rash judgment. You probably regard me as an uncultivated fellow, averse to the arts, but I am not so by any means. There is a particular consideration, however, based upon deep conviction, which constrains me to forbid the introduction here, as far as possible, of such music as can powerfully affect any person's mind. And to this I, of course, am no exception. Know that my wife suffers from a morbid excitability, which will finally destroy all the happiness of her life. Within these strange walls, she is never quit of that strained, over-excited condition, which at other times occurs but temporarily, and then generally as the forerunner of a serious illness. You will ask me, and quite reasonably too, why I do not spare my delicate wife the necessity of coming to live in this weird castle, and mix amongst the wild confusion of a hunting party. Well, call it weakness, be it so. In a word, I cannot bring myself to leave her behind. I should be tortured by a thousand fears, and quite incapable of any serious business, for I am perfectly sure that I should be haunted everywhere, in the justice hall as well as in the forest, 
by the most horrid ideas of all kinds of fatal mischief happening to her. And, on the other hand, I believe that the sort of life led here cannot fail to operate upon the weakly woman like strengthening calibiate waters. By my soul, the sea breezes, sweeping keenly after their peculiar fashion through the fir trees, and the deep baying of the hounds and the merry ringing notes of our hunting horns, must get the better of all your sickly languishing sentimentalizings at the piano, which no man ought to play in that way. I tell you, you are deliberately torturing my wife to death. These words he uttered with great emphasis, whilst his eyes flashed with a restless fire. The blood mounted to my head. I made a violent gesture against the baron with my hand. I was about to speak, but he cut me short. I know what you are going to say, he began. I know what you are going to say, and I repeat that you are going the right road to kill my wife. But that you intended this, I cannot, of course, for a moment maintain. And yet you will understand that I must put a stop to the thing. In short, by your playing and singing, you work her up to a high pitch of excitement, and then when she drifts without anchor and rudder, on the boundless sea of dreams and visions and vague aspirations which your music, like some vile charm, has summoned into existence, you plunge her down into the depths of horror with a tale about a fearful apparition which you say came and played pranks with you up in the justice hall. Your great-uncle has told me everything. But pray, repeat to me all you saw or did not see, heard, felt, divined by instinct. I braced myself up and narrated calmly how everything had happened from beginning to end. The baron, merely interposing at intervals a few words expressive of his astonishment. When I came to the part where my old uncle had met the ghost with trustful courage and had exorcised him with a few powerful words, the baron clasped his hands, raised them, folded towards heaven, and said with deep emotion, Yes, he is the guardian angel of the family. His mortal remains shall rest in the vault of my ancestors. When I finished my narration, the baron murmured to himself, Daniel, Daniel, what are you doing here at this hour? As he folded his arms and strode up and down the room. And was that all, Herr Baron? I asked, making a movement as though I would retire. Starting up as if out of a dream, the baron took me kindly by the hand and said, Yes, my good friend. My wife, whom you have dealt so hardly by, without intending it, you must cure her again. You alone can do so. I felt I was blushing, and had I stood opposite a mirror, should undoubtedly have seen in it a very blank and absurd face. The baron seemed to exult in my embarrassment. He kept his eyes fixed intently upon my face, smiling with perfectly galling irony. How in the world can I cure her? I managed to stammer out at length with an effort. Well, he said, interrupting me, you have no dangerous patient to deal with at any rate. I now make an express claim upon your skill. Since the Baroness has been drawn into the enchanted circle of your music, it would be both foolish and cruel to drag her out of it all of a sudden. Go on with your music, therefore. You will always be welcome during the evening hours in my wife's apartments but gradually select a more energetic kind of music and effect a clever alternation of the cheerful sort with the serious. And above all things, repeat your story of the fearful ghost very, very often. The Baroness will grow familiar with it. She will forget that a ghost haunts this castle, 
and the story will have no stronger effect upon her than any other tale of enchantment which is put before her in a romance or a ghost story book. Pray do this, my good friend. With these words the baron left me. I went away. I felt as if I were annihilated, to be thus humiliated to the level of a foolish and insignificant child. Fool that I was to suppose that jealousy was stirring his heart. He himself sends me to Serafina. He sees in me only the blind instrument which, after he has made use of it, he can throw away if he thinks well. A few minutes previously, I had really feared the baron. Deep down within my heart lurked the consciousness of guilt. But it was a consciousness which allowed me to feel distinctly the beauty of the higher life for which I was right. Now all had disappeared in the blackness of night, and I saw only the stupid boy who, in childish obstinacy, had persisted in taking the paper crown which he had put on his hot temples for a real golden one. I hurried away to my uncle, who was waiting for me. "'Well, cousin, why have you been so long? Where have you been staying?' he cried as soon as he saw me. "'I have been having some words with the baron,' I quickly replied, carelessly and in a low voice, without being able to look at the old gentleman. "'God damn it all!' said he, feigning astonishment. "'Good gracious, boy, that's just what I thought. "'I suppose the baron has challenged you, cousin?' The ringing peal of laughter which the old gentleman immediately afterwards broke out into taught me that this time, too, as always, he had seen me through and through. I bit my lip and durst not speak a word, for I knew very well that it would only be the signal for the old gentleman to overwhelm me beneath the torrent of teasing which was already hovering on the tip of his tongue. The baroness appeared at the dinner-table in an elegant morning robe, the dazzling whiteness of which exceeded that of fresh fallen snow. She looked worn and low-spirited, but she began to speak in her soft and melodious accents, and on raising her dark eyes there shone a sweet and yearning look full of aspiration in their voluptuous glow, and a fugitive blush flitted across her lily-white cheeks. She was more beautiful than ever. But who can fathom the follies of a young man who has got too hot blood in his head and heart? The bitter pique which the baron had stirred up within me I transferred to the baroness. The entire business seemed to me like a foul mystification, and I would now show that I was possessed of alarmingly good common sense and also of extraordinary sagacity. Like a petulant child, I shunned the baroness and escaped Adelheid when she pursued me and found a place where I wished, right at the bottom end of the table between the two officers with whom I began to carouse right merrily. We kept our glasses going gaily during dessert, and I was, as so frequently is the case in moods like mine, extremely noisy and loud in my joviality. A servant brought me a plate with some bonbons on it, and the words from Lady Adelheid. I took them, and observed on one of them, scribbled in pencil, and Seraphina. My blood coursed tumultuously in my veins. I sent a glance in Adelheid's direction which she met with a most sly and archly cunning look, and, taking her glass in her hand, she gave me a slight nod. Almost mechanically, I murmured to myself, Seraphina. Then, taking up my glass in my turn, I drained it at a single draught. My glance fell across in her direction. I perceived that she also had drunk at the very same moment and was setting down her glass. Our eyes met 
and a malignant demon whispered in my ear, Unhappy wretch, she does love you. One of the guests now rose, and in conformity with the custom of the North, proposed the health of the lady of the house. Our glasses rang in the midst of a tumult of joy. My heart was torn with rapture and despair. The wine burned like fire within me. Everything spun round in circles. I felt as if I must hasten and throw myself at her feet, and there sigh out my life. "'What's the matter with you, my friend?' asked my neighbour, thus recalling me to myself. But Seraphina had left the hall. We rose from the table. I was making for the door, but Adelheide held me fast and began to talk about diverse matters. I neither heard nor understood a single word. She grasped both my hands and, laughing, shouted something in my ear. I remained dumb and motionless, as though affected by catalepsy. All I remember is that I finally took a glass of liqueur out of Adelaide's hand in a mechanical way and drank it off. And then I recollect being alone in a window, and after that I rushed out of the hall, down the stairs, and ran into the wood. The snow was falling in thick flakes. The fir trees were moaning as they waved to and fro in the wind. Like a maniac, I ran round and round in wide circles, laughing and screaming loudly, Look, look, and see, aha, aha, the devil is having a fine dance with the boy who thought he would taste of strictly forbidden fruit. Who can tell what would have been the end of my mad prank if I had not heard my name called loudly from outside of the wood? The storm had abated. The moon shone out brightly through the broken clouds. I heard dogs barking and perceived a dark figure approaching me. It was the old man Francis. Why, why, my good Herr Theodore, he began, you have quite lost your way in the rough snowstorm. The Herr Justicarius is awaiting you with much impatience. I followed the old man in silence. I found my great-uncle working in the justice hall. You have done well, he cried on seeing me. You have done a very wise thing to go out in the open air a little and get cool. But don't drink quite so much wine. You are far too young, and it's not good for you. I did not utter a word in reply, and also took my place at the table in silence. But now tell me, good cousin, what it was that the baron really wanted you for? I told him all, and concluded by stating that I would not lend myself for the doubtful cure which the baron had proposed. And it would not be practicable, the old gentleman interrupted, for tomorrow morning, early, we set off home, cousin, and so it was that I never saw Seraphina again. End of part two of the entail, recording by Thomas Copeland.